I'm going to open with a word of prayer and just ask the Lord's blessing on our time tonight. Heavenly Father, just thank you for this opportunity to gather together in your name and look into the subject of the last days. And I pray that you would guide us and bless us in this time and that it would be a time that's informative and helpful for knowledge, but also uh, transformational because these truths um, should change our perspective and should change the way we live our lives and our priorities. And so we just pray to that effect that you would work your perfect heart, perfect work in every heart and every life here tonight. Amen. All right, so I, uh, eschatology, if you weren't here with us last week, we're doing this Creekside U the first time. Uh, last Sunday was our week one, and this is the final week two of it. Although I almost wish I could have a semester with you. This is so fun. Um, it is, you know, and, and eschatology just simply means eschatos, last things. So we're studying the last things of the Bible. Um, so in a, in a quick recap here, if my... Uh, Okay, and uh, at the beginning of last week we said we want to avoid a couple of attitudes about prophecy, and, and one is uh, the attitude of apathy or indifference, which unfortunately is, is in our churches today. Uh, when you think about the end times and how much symbolism there is and, uh, and things that are uh, not always plain, uh, challenging to understand, uh, people kind of grow indifferent to it. Or, or because it's been so long since the Bible was written, um, it, we're almost like scoffers in essence sometimes where Second Peter says, uh, the scoffers say, where is the promise of his coming? Um, another attitude to avoid is sensationalism, and that's uh, looking in our news events uh, to try to find fulfillment and prophecy everywhere. And, and we talked about some of those last time. Uh, and one of them in particular I mentioned last time was this Herald Camping with Family Radio who you know, predicted uh, the Lord's return first in 1994, wrote a book called 1994. Uh, and then again on May 21st, 2011, well, I just wanted to show you this again. Um, there was a, it was in the news, and there's billboards everywhere. <clears throat> and uh, afterwards, somebody put up this billboard. That was awkward, you know, after the date had passed. In fact, I remember <clears throat> we had uh, scheduled that Sunday afterwards, on May 22nd, speaker from Emmaus Bible College, Ken Dodders, the president at that time. And uh, I had set up the arrangement with him, and he was going to be speaking on the Lord's return, the second coming. And I emailed him that week saying, should we cancel? Because <laughs> the Lord will have come. And he replied, not aware of Herald Camping, uh, and saying, I do not understand. <laughs> so I had to fill him in. That was kind of funny. Um, but anyways, we, we, don't want, we want to avoid that because the truth is from the Bible that no one knows the day or the hour. And so uh, we're told to be ready and be expectant for his coming. Um, eschatology, along with other doctrines of the Bible, <clears throat> We want to make sure that we're majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. What I mean by that is there are some things about this study that we should all believe and agree on, and there's some things it's okay to disagree on but are still important to discuss. And some of those things we should agree on is that Christ is going to return bodily to the earth one day, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, a judgment of unbelievers, a final reward for believers, um, and a final triumph of Christ over all his enemies— and finally, believers living with Christ in a new heavens and new earth. Um, and then with some of the things that are still important, but uh, we don't need to break fellowship over, is the timing of the rapture. We're going to look at that tonight. Um, the timing and fulfillment of the great tribulation. We're going to look at that tonight. And the timing and nature of the millennium. We're also going to look at that tonight. So I'm, I'm excited about tonight. Um, we're going to look at some of these detailed things. Uh, now, 
this might be kind of hard to read because we don't have the brightest projector, but um, we went through each of these last time, but why Bible prophecy matters. And, uh, and first of all, it's because it makes up 20% of our Bible. If, if we don't study Bible prophecy, we're not going to know a large chunk of our Bible. Um, it gives us proof of the reliability of all scripture. When prophecies come true, and many of the prophecies in the Bible have come true about Christ's first coming, um, we can trust that what the Bible prophesies about the yet future, about his second coming, will come true as well. Um, Bible prophecies remind us that God is sovereign, that he's in control. When the evil in this world seems to be out of control, God is sovereign, he's in control, and Bible prophecy reminds us of that. Uh, And then it reminds us that he is good. We suffered tribulation, hardships in this life, difficulties and losses, and it reminds us that God is good, and he's got a good plan for us as believers and for this world. And it motivates us to holy living. Uh, We looked at that verse in 1 John 3 that... uh, that we should live pure lives in light of his coming. Um, and it helps us to establish heavenly priorities. Um, we have a lot of plans, and they're good plans in life, and we should plan. We should be busily about our lives, um, but keeping the Lord in mind, because uh, we could pursue a lot of things in this life. But ultimately, in the end, uh, we know how it's going to end. The, the world's going to be burned up. The things, A lot of the things, the pleasure pursuits we have in this life won't matter in the end, and... Uh, it's still good to make plans and to, and to make plans for the future, but um, keep God in mind. Have heavenly priorities. And then it motivates us to serve God, knowing that he could come at any time. We should all the more pour out our energies and our lives into service for the Lord. And lastly, and maybe most importantly, it causes us to worship the Lord. Um, prophecy is the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says in Revelation. Um, and so it causes us to worship the Lord. Um, And we looked at several reasons why Christ must return. I won't go through all of them again. But there was 10 reasons why Jesus Christ must return. The Bible's very clear on it. Uh, I don't know about you, but I came away from this study more convinced than ever that Jesus is coming again. And and just that expectancy that creates in you from studying that. Um, And then the last uh, reason Christ must return, I added this one. I had a top 10 list, but this was number 11. The testimony of the Lord's Supper demands it. And that was from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, And then we take communion every week, so this is a good thing to think about. That for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And so we look back to the cross, but we also look forward to his coming again. Sorry, I'm getting over a cold here. Um, we looked at how and when Christ will return. He uh, said it... <coughs> It will be sudden. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. It will be personal. Jesus is coming personally to the earth one day. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And then it will be visible and bodily. Um, When he comes again, the whole world will see it. For his lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Um, We talked about some scriptures. Some about his second coming indicate that he could come at any time, that his coming is imminent. (coughs) And uh, some say that there must be signs fulfilled first before he could return. And so there was this apparent contradiction So could he come at any time? Or do we wait for signs to occur first? 
And there were some different possible solutions to that. One was that Christ could not come at any time. But then, if he couldn't come at any time, what about the scriptures that say, be ready? And the coming of the Lord is at hand. <coughs> Secondly, Christ could come at any time. And that's what we believe here. That Christ could come at any time. That his coming is imminent. And that will happen because there will be a pre-tribulational rapture, then the tribulation, and then a second coming. So his coming is imminent. He could come at any time. Third, all the signs have been fulfilled so Christ could return at any moment. And most people say that, well, those tribulation signs um, occurred in the first century or throughout the history of the church. And so the signs have been fulfilled so Christ could return. Or, and I, I didn't care for this one as much, but uh, some people teach this, that it's unlikely but possible that the signs have already been fulfilled. So we don't know with certainty if the signs have been fulfilled or not. So uh, they may or may not have been fulfilled. So the Lord's coming is imminent. It could come. We don't know. Um, and these are the signs that we went through. In Matthew 24, one of the key passages about the end times, it, talked, it says that before the Lord will return, that there will be a preaching of the gospel to all nations, that there will be a great tribulation such as the earth has never seen before, never will see again, that there will be false Christs and false prophets, um, powerful signs in the heavens, and an appearance of the man of lawlessness, which we identify as the Antichrist, that's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And then the salvation of Israel. Israel still has a place in the plan of God. Um, some Christian teachers would say that the church has replaced Israel as the people of God and the blessings are now for the church and that there's not a future in Bible prophecy for national ethnic Israel. Um, we would disagree with that because Romans 9 uh, through 11 talks about how the Israel will be restored one day. And so for that, that hasn't happened yet. The nation has been reformed in 1948, but still they have not become the people of God, and, and God is going to use a time of tribulation to bring that about. So um, we, start, we got to the end last week on uh, starting into the subject of the millennium. This 1,000-year period in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, and it's the only chapter it's mentioned in the Bible, this period of 1,000 years, but it's mentioned six times in the first seven verses. So it's important. And I'm just going to read those first 10 verses of chapter 20 again. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw the thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. 
The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And uh, when we approach the book of Revelation, and I'm just going to do a quick jet tour. Last week we gave these out and we gave them all out. So if you want one, um, see me and we'll, we'll try to get some more. But this is a jet tour through Revelation. Did anybody read that? Any of it this week? Didn't have time? Okay, that's fine. Uh, by John MacArthur. If, any, if anything else, I'm at least like, introducing you to one of my favorite authors, John MacArthur. So um, it's a great uh, brief 20-page booklet that really just goes through the book of Revelation and explains a lot of the symbolism and imagery in the book. So very helpful. Um, what you have in the book of Revelation, and when we approach this, we want to approach it literally. Um, how you approach reading this book makes a big difference in where you come out in the end. If, if you approach it non-literally um, and you interpret things uh, a different way than what it states plainly, um, you might end up an amillennialist or uh, a post-millennialist. And we talked a little bit about that last week. I'll recap quickly here in a moment. Um, but if you look at it literally and just take it at face value, and even when we look at it literally, we take obvious symbols and uh, metaphors and metonyms into account, um, we come up with a pre-tribulational rapture and pre-millennial return of Jesus Christ. Um, Okay, real quick, I'm going to explain what I mean by that. We looked at amillennialism briefly, and that's the, and that's the, the this thousand-year period we read about in Revelation 20 is a, is a spiritual kingdom. There's not going to be a literal, earthly, political kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth before the new heavens and new earth. It, it is Christ's spiritual rule in the hearts of men on the earth, uh, or some would say it's Christ's spiritual rule through his saints in heaven. So it, it's a spiritualized Rule. And it's not necessarily a literal 1,000 years. That 1,000 years to them would just mean a, a complete time period. Um, we had some problems with that, though, because uh, we're told that Satan is bound. Um, so what do the amillennialists say about Satan being bound? Because uh, they, they would just say that he doesn't have the ability to deceive the nations from hearing the gospel anymore. But, but I, I would think that if Satan is bound in the way that that chapter talks about Satan being bound that he would have no influence on the earth. The angel is sent, and a seal is put on Satan, on that, on that prison called the abyss. And it would just seem to me that there would be no satanic influence if he was really bound in that way, literally. Um, so it kind of diminishes the binding of Satan, this view. And it also just, it's just a different approach from looking at Scripture, a, a non-literal approach. Um, but we have good brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ who teach that and believe that. Um, Postmillennialism is the idea that there, there will be a kingdom on the earth, uh, may or may not be exactly a thousand years, but uh, it's going to be brought in through the preaching of the gospel. That the preaching of the gospel is so powerful and will have such an effect not only on individuals but on our society and culture that it will Christianize our culture and Christianize the world and usher in the kingdom. So in effect, that motivates us to go out and, and preach the gospel and do that. Um, and that, that, too, is spiritualizing some of the scriptures about it as well. Um, the fact is, when you look out today, the, the world's not getting better and better and more Christianized. When we look out in the world today, it seems like evil is increasing. And that's what you would expect from the view we're going to spend tonight talking about uh, and premillennialism here. Um, premillennialism, so amillennialism, um, I said ah, meaning there won't be a literal earthly kingdom on earth, amillennialism, uh, like we say amoral in the English language. Um, 
post-millennialism. Christ is returning post the millennium, after the millennial kingdom. Uh, Christ returns after that kingdom the church brings in. And pre-millennialism would mean that Christ is returning before the thousand years, right? Um, and so there's some events uh, in this, uh, you know, I, I don't want to present this as just a scheme or, or some charts, and, we're, and I gave you a blank sheet of paper because we're going to do a chart activity tonight. Um, the Iwana kids get to have a lot of fun on Wednesday nights. I thought, why can't the adults have fun for a night with some charts? Uh, last week I mentioned the name of a guy, Clarence Larkin, L-A-R-K-I-N. If you Google Clarence Larkin charts, you will have some fun. If you, well, I think so. Um, he's got a lot of great charts. He, he drew, oh, at least 100 charts or so on Bible prophecy and end times theology. And uh, I looked at some of his charts, and I looked at some of the, somebody newer, like Tim LaHaye, although he's 88 now. The guy who, who co-authored Left Behind in the movies, he's 88. I looked that up. I couldn't believe it. Tim LaHaye is 88 years old. All right. Well, um, you think of him as more contemporary than that, but he, yeah. He has a great book called The Rapture that's also very, very good. Okay, so, and, uh, so if you want to draw this, you can design yours a little bit differently, but I'll just kind of show you what I do with the Iwana kids a little bit here, too. I do this block lettering thing, and uh, first event here is the cross. So we think of Christ's first coming and all the prophecies about his first coming. And depending on how far you weigh, you may be able to see this or not. But cross, Jesus came at his first coming just as the prophecies had told as a Messiah, but not as many had thought he would come. Uh, they had thought from the Old Testament scriptures that he would come as a, as a king and a ruler and deliver them from the Roman oppressors, but that, that's not what he came for at that time. Uh, he came to die on the cross to provide atonement for our sins. Um, and then... After uh, he was crucified and buried and rose again, he spent 40 days on the earth before he ascended to heaven. So I'm having an up arrow here for Christ. And a down arrow for the Holy Spirit. Because we know after he was taken up to heaven, he said, I would send a, after I go, I will send a comforter. And that was the Holy Spirit to empower the believers, uh, to fill the believers um, for service. And... Uh, for godly lives. And now Christ in heaven, we're, we're told, is, is functioning in a role. And I'm just going to put a word up here for that. Priest. Uh, he's our high... Uh, heavenly high priest right now, the great high priest. And so he is, during this time we're in now, uh, the church age. So I'm going to put church in here. And you don't have to do black lettering like I'm doing. Just do it however you want to do it. But um, sometimes letters turn out better than other times. I'll get a little... uh, Church, uh, this is the church age. We're, we're in this time of history right now where um, the Old Testament prophets didn't see this time coming. And that's kind of interesting. I, I was related last week of how when my older cousin and I were climbing a mountain, we thought, in Colorado, and we got to the top, but there was a valley, and then it was still going up further, but we couldn't see that further peak. 
And in prophecy, we call these the mountain peaks of prophecy because those Old Testament prophets looked ahead with, their, with the prophecies God gave them and, and they didn't see the church in here. This was kind of like a parenthesis in God's plan or a gap. Um, they saw different prophecies about a suffering Messiah and about a glorious King Messiah coming to earth, um, but they didn't see this church age. It was what Paul calls in Ephesians a mystery that was now revealed. And so we're now in this church age. Okay, and then uh, tonight we're going to talk about here um, the last days, and uh, the Bible's going to describe the last days. So I'm going to put last days down here. Uh, And then we have an up arrow here. I'm going to put an R by it for the rapture. So I'm going to back away from my board a little bit and uh, look at the last days. Okay. First of all, what we can expect to see from the Bible is that when we get closer to the time of Christ's return, there will be increasing apostasy. Uh, you, get, you got a blank in your notes there. It's apostasy, increasing apostasy. Um, in, in general, the Bible refers to the last days as the entire time from when Christ left to his return. Um, in Hebrews 1-2, it says that he is in these last days spoken to us by his son. In these last days. But um, leading up to the return of Christ, the last days are also spoken of this way in 2 Timothy 3. Um, It gives 18 characteristics of a decline in morals, and they're going to happen in greater and greater uh, times towards the end. In 2 Timothy 3, it says, But know this, that in the last days, so this is the last, last of the days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying his power, and from such people turn away. Uh, So all those things are really kind of true of all generations during this time uh, to a degree. But in the last days, these things are going to increase greatly. Um, so we, and we, I think we kind of see the increase of it, but um, I don't know if we're in the last, last days or not, but we may be. Um, now, I just want to comment just for a moment on what is apostasy. It mentions apostasy in, in, the, in the last days, and uh, there's a few things to think of that Scripture says about apostasy in this world. First is the denial of the Trinity, that the God is three in one, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In 1 John 2, John says, who is a liar But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is an antichrist who denies the Father and the Son, antichrist lower A. Um, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. In the last days, we're going to see a great increase in denial of the Trinity. Um, The Bible also talks about a denial of the incarnation of Christ, when when Christ, that Christ, God, came to this earth. And uh, in 1 John 2, 22, um, and 2 John 1, 7, um, we have verses that speak about this, and, and one is, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist, lower A. And so uh, I say lower A because we're going to talk about antichrist with a capital A in just a moment. Um, and so people will deny um, that Jesus has come in the flesh. Uh, people do today, but even more so in the last days. And then lastly, uh, apostasy is denial of the return of Christ. 
um, which we talked a lot about last week. And that verse again from 2 Peter 3 that said, knowing this verse, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Uh, They they didn't remember their Sunday school stories about Noah and the flood, apparently, um, because just like that, God is going to come one day again in judgment. Okay, the rapture. Uh, This is fun for me. I really like thinking about the rapture um, and looking forward to it. And and, uh, have have you ever thought about what the rapture will be like? I, uh, as a boy, I saw this uh, on a postcard in my my grandma's house in Waterloo. And uh, it's, it's an older picture now, but you see, if you can see it, there's some saints going up from the cars, from the graves. Uh, Jesus is up in the clouds to greet them. Um, last week at the Drake Relays, I, I, now, I just wonder if the rapture could come at any moment, if it might happen at a moment like this. Um, here's the Frenchman who won the pole vault, which was held downtown on Court Avenue last week for the Drake Relays on April 22nd. And he's way up there. Now, if the rapture happened, he would probably have a head start on the rest of us. Um, Elijah. Now this, is, now, this was in the Bible. We have some people who were raptured in the Bible. Here's Elijah taken up in a whirlwind, a fiery chariot. Uh, can you name the other one in the Old Testament who was raptured, who did not see death? Enoch. Good, good. Yeah, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He did not see death. Uh, right, and then we also uh, had the ascension of Jesus after his uh, death. Okay, the rapture of the church. Where does that come from? Where does this idea of a rapture come from? Uh, first of all, in First Thessalonians 4, this is, these are really the two key passages. If somebody were to ask you, where is the rapture in the Bible? Look at First Thessalonians 4 and First Corinthians 15. First of all, this first in First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now those two words in there that says that we're caught up, um, that's from the Latin words rapturo. And so we get our word rapture from that. uh, Right there, that we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Um, like Enoch or like Elijah. Or in the New Testament, there was a, a disciple of Jesus in the book of Acts who was caught up, not to heaven, but uh, caught up and brought to another location. Do you, anybody know that name? Philip. Philip, thank you. Philip, yes. Uh, the Holy Spirit took him uh, from Gaza and brought him to Caesarea to witness um, to someone. Paul was uh, caught up to the third heaven in a vision. So just kind of interesting there. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15 is that other verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall, be, we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. It describes a moment when, the res- when there's a, there's a resurrection of the dead um, and those who are alive in a, in a changing, in an instant, in a moment, uh, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So uh, now there's some different views on the rapture, um, and I believe this page is maybe the third to last in your notes. 
but you might want to slide it up if you haven't stapled already and uh, move it to this point in your notes because I'm moving it up to this point. Um, so some people, and these are, these are all good brothers and sisters in Christ. We, um, this is kind of an in-house debate at this point as far as to when the rapture is going to happen. Uh, we read in Matthew 24 about a great tribulation and then the coming of Christ in power and glory. And so the question is, will the church go through the tribulation? And there's different answers to that. And so we want to understand other viewpoints as well as better understand the viewpoint um, that we teach here at Creekside. So uh, here I'm going to start at number two here with this uh, mid-tribulational rapture. You see that after the cross in the church age, um, we get to the seven-year tribulation period and the church goes through half of it, mid-tribulational rapture. And at the midpoint, at three and a half years, um, they are caught up to heaven um, and that's symbolized by the two witnesses ascending to heaven. Um, and then they come back with Christ in the millennial kingdom. It's really kind of a, a variation of pre-tribulational rapture, really. And I'll talk about it in just a minute, a little bit more. Post-tribulational rapture, Christ will come post. The rapture will happen post-tribulation. And in this view, it, it, it kind of makes it a secondary event. Um, they don't emphasize it so much because we're just caught up to be with the Lord to come down into the kingdom. Uh, and then lastly here, this one isn't, uh, I don't think it has too many followers, but it's an interesting one, so I'll mention it. It's called the partial rapture. It's, it's just those who are spiritual and ready and prepared will be raptured at the beginning of the tribulation. And then there'll be a few more opportunities at different key points in the tribulation when you could also be raptured if you're then walking with the Lord faithfully. Um, I'll, I'll tell you which verse they use that from. It's Hebrews 9, uh, 28. And uh, I have it here. Yeah, Hebrews 9.28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin for salvation. So Christians not living holy lives will be left behind and have another chance later in the tribulation. And it depends on their works and their holiness. And, uh, but um, I don't think we need to spend too much time on that view because 1 Corinthians 15 that we just read says plainly states that all will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, all of us. Um, so I think we can kind of scratch that one out without too many hurt feelings. But uh, now this mid-tribulational rapture is kind of interesting. Uh, it's, the pre-tribulational rapture is probably the, wide, the widest view in the evangelical church in America today, but this one's gaining a few more followers. Um, Gleason Archer is an author for that. And it's similar to pre-trib, except that it's in the middle of the tribulation, now, this is where they get this. Um, the two witnesses, and mentioned in Revelation chapter 11, there's two witnesses from God um, that witness for God and, and perform miracles for God during the first half of the tribulation. Um, and, then they're, and then they're killed, and their bodies are left out on the streets, it says, and then, they're, and then there's a voice that says, come up here, and they're taken up. And so the mid-tribulationalists would say that those two witnesses are, one, um, the witnessing believers during the first half of the tribulation who are alive, and two, the church that sleeps. Um, we know from First Thessalonians 4 that we, we sleep in Christ. And so, um, so there's two witnesses, and they're, and they're caught up to heaven at that point when it says that those two witnesses go to heaven. So uh, mid-tribers emphasize that the first half of the tribulation features man's wrath, and, the, and that's what the church is going to experience. But after that, believers will be taken up like the two witnesses, and so avoid the great tribulation, or what's called the wrath of God, 
during the last half of the tribulation. So we spend the first three and a half years during the tribulation on earth and then raptured up to heaven for three and a half years in the Father's house before coming back down in the second coming to uh, go into the millennium. Um, and they would say that the same word for rapture is used in 1 Thessalonians 4.15 and Matthew 24.27. The rapture in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 happens with those signs that are going to occur during the tribulation. Um, and when you look in Revelation 11, verses 11 to 12, it says, Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, the witnesses. They stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Uh, the mid-tribulationists would also say the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Um, we'll talk about the trumpets in a little bit. And Revelation 11 is the same as the rapture trumpet of 1 Corinthians 15. And the wrath of God is only three and a half years. Now, um, some counterpoints to that. Uh, consider this. If the, now, the, the rapture does not appear in Revelation chapter 11 if you take the passage literally. These two witnesses are described as having real clothes in the passage and having real powers such as Elijah and Moses had, Old Testament Israelites. And in fact, some speculate that just as Moses and Elijah were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ, this may be Moses and Elijah again. Um, Moses, because he's the, the, the judgments of God in the book of Exodus are kind of similar to some of the things they can do here in Revelation. They can breathe that fire out of their mouths. They can strike the earth with as many plagues as they desire, it says. And when they are killed, there's just so much detail here. It's hard to spiritualize it all. When they're killed, their bodies lay on the ground for a specific period of days in a literal city, Jerusalem. So the normal literal interpretation of the passage is that there's two specific men. Otherwise, how can symbols be literally killed and lie in literal streets, right? Um, how can you kill the witnesses since one is the church that is sleeping already? So uh, you can't kill the dead in Christ already. Um, and how can people from all tribes, tongues, and nations, as it says in verse 9, see their dead bodies over a three-day period if it applies to the entire church? Um, now, I think the trumpet argument is interesting. I could have brought my trumpet tonight, but I, uh, I was tempted to, and I thought of what I might do for that and see if you could recognize some military calls. I can play some different military calls for you and see if you could guess it. But with my sore throat, I just didn't think I, I could do that tonight. But... Um, there are different trumpets in the Bible. We don't need to, there is, just as in the military, you have reveille, uh, you have taps at night. Uh, there's just different calls and sounds to battle, um, which they don't use trumpets anymore for military too much, other than at camps. They, do, they still do some of those. Um, so, end time trumpets. They can be, there's different end time trumpets too. There's trumpets of judgment, and there's trumpets of blessing. What we have in Revelation is trumpets of judgment. What we have in 1 Thessalonians 4 is a trumpet of blessing for the believer, a different trumpet. Um, now, I will tell a funny story. Tim O'Bearen, uh, our worship leader, and I were at Emmaus Bible College at the same time. And uh, Mr. Glock our, uh, had just been talking that day about the rapture in, in, in our class and, and uh, how it would be kind of funny if like, somebody fell asleep in class and we all just left the room with some clothes in the seats, like they had just been left behind. They woke up and they were left behind. So Tim uh, comes to me at night 
and, and it knocks on my door and says, Mark, get your trumpet. And uh, so we, we, uh, a kid had fallen asleep in the student lounge. And so all, there was about 20 kids in there, and it was busy. And they all left, and they left clothes and other things behind. Um, I think they kept their own clothes on, but they left other clothes. And, uh, and, and so they had all left, and it was quiet in there, and the kid was sleeping. And so they, they all come with me to the window, and I get my trumpet out. And we, I do some kind of trumpet fanfare, and we're all standing out there watching in to see his reaction, you know. And he wakes up, you know, looks around, where's everybody? You know, we, we could do that at church some morning here. If somebody fell asleep on a Sunday morning sermon, we could do that. We could all leave, and I would play my trumpet and the rapture, you know? Yeah. Well, anyways, uh, the trumpets. The seventh trumpet of Revelation is a trumpet of judgment. And it just marks the beginning of the seven bowl judgments to follow it. Um, so it's a trumpet of judgment, not of blessing. Also, the first half of the tribulation is going to be pretty bad. Um, if you read about those first six seal judgments in Revelation, times are going to be pretty bad, even for believers. Um, in fact, in Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, they're called the wrath of the Lamb and the great day of his wrath. And men want to hide to avoid the wrath of the Lamb. Um, so it's hard to say the church is preserved through that first three and a half years of the tribulation. Um, they go into hiding. And I just think it destroys this idea of imminence. Last week we talked about how Christ could return at any moment. And uh, if, if there are signs and tribulations to go through first, Christ could not come at any moment. We're not just looking for Christ to come at any moment, but we're looking for these tribulation events and the Antichrist to come. And we could set a date for it if we knew those events were happening. And there was a mid-tribulational rapture, we could set a date for it. Okay, so I think Revelation has to... 11 has to be spiritualized to mean a mid-tribulational rapture. and um, Not a good way to approach it, in my opinion. All right, post-tribulationalism. And, uh, you know, I'm going to stay here. Post-tribulationalism, that Christ comes at the end uh, for his, his, the believers, at the end of the tribulation. So the church has to endure the entire tribulation. Um, and all those events just kind of happen all at once then. There's a rapture. Um, Second coming, the judgment seat of Christ, marriage supper of the Lamb, Christ overthrowing the Antichrist. It all happens at the same time in this view. It's been growing through the years, and there's a book called The Blessed Hope by George Ladd. And he really um, got this view off the ground in the last half century. And more people have been leaving a, a, a literal approach to Scripture and a pre-tribulational view because of this teaching. The main points, and uh, one of their main points is that it is the oldest point of view. And they sometimes call it historic premillennialism. And history is important. Um, they say that the burden of proof is on the pre-tribulationalists to prove otherwise. Well, um, pre-tribulationalism wasn't clearly taught until the early 1800s under John Nelson Darby in England and Ireland, and then it spread throughout the U.S. But uh, like I mentioned last week, uh, well, maybe I didn't mention this part, but the book of Revelation was one of the last books to be added to officially recognized as part of the Bible by the church. And uh, by that time, the Catholic Church had come along, and they had a very non-literal approach to Scripture. And so when Revelation was officially recognized, um, they, they read it very in a non-literal sense. And then, and then we entered into the Dark Period, the Dark Ages. Then you have about 1500 A.D., when the printing press and, and there was a revival and the Reformation, 
Um, a lot of doctrines were looked at closely, and there was a revival of justification by faith, and that was exciting. And they, thought, they talked about that for a couple generations. And, and then one of the last doctrines to really get a close look over was this doctrine of eschatology in the last things. In the early 1800s, there was, just a, there was a spirit of prophecy in the air, and everybody started writing about it, and the Plymouth Brethren started teaching about it. And so uh, it, it spread. Um, and, but the post-tribber would say, um, the post-trib view is older. So, uh, well, okay. But the rapture, they say, occurs after the tribulation, and it's the same event as the second coming. It's just kind of secondary to it. They take prophecy, and particularly the tribulation events of Revelation chapters 6 through 19, more figuratively or symbolically um, than we would. Uh, they would have to. They'd have to say that. Some of them um, would maybe even say they've been fulfilled in the first century or throughout church history. Uh, some others would say they're still future, but we're going to have to go through it as a church. And there's a verse in Revelation 3.10 that says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is to come upon the whole world, um, which pre-tribulationalists would say is a promise to keep the church out of the tribulation. Well, they would say, no, that just means the church will be delivered from the effects of the tribulation. They'll go through it, but be preserved through it. I have a hard time with that because when you, when you look at the events of the tribulation, they are so cataclysmic, so destructive. I do not know how. I mean, a miracle of God would have to happen to preserve um, the entire church through that period. Okay, uh, also, uh, I think that this view really ignores that promise in Revelation 3.10. I'm going to look at that a little more closer in just a minute. I think it kind of trivializes the second coming. Well, so in the rapture, at the end of the tribulation, we go up, but for what? We just come right back down right away um, in his glorious appearing. So it's not that significant of an event. Um, and it doesn't really allow any time for the judgment seat of Christ. I'll speak about that in just a moment. Um, it happens in the twinkling of an eye for a post-tribber. So uh, what is the purpose, too? What is the purpose of having the church on the earth during the tribulation? Why should the church go through the wrath of God? He's, he's bought us by his blood. He's redeemed us. We're saved in Christ. We're his people. Um, he says we're not destined to wrath. Why should the church go through such a terrible time of great wrath on the earth, a time of judgment? Um, that's just a theological argument, but we'll look at scriptural arguments in a moment. I think it destroys eminence, too, just for the same reason as mid-tribulationalists. We're not looking for Christ in this view. We're looking for the destructive events of the tribulation. We're looking for the Antichrist and those things. So how is it a blessed hope? Uh, Titus 2.13 calls the appearing of the Lord a blessed hope. I, I don't know if I can call the rapture a blessed hope if I have to go through all those tribulation events first. Um, also, and this is just a, uh, one they really don't have a good answer for, is that who will populate and propagate the millennial kingdom? If the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation and the believers are all caught up to heaven, which uh, believers in their natural bodies are left to enter into the millennium and, and have children and live lives on the earth in natural bodies, as the scriptures talk about? So that's a problem. There, there wouldn't be any unless there's some kind of special... Uh, mass conversion right at the coming of Christ. I think some of them say that, actually. Um, okay, well, let's not spend any more time on other views here. Let's get to pre-tribulational rapture. If somebody were to ask you, where 
does the Bible say there will be a pre-tribulation rapture? Is there a verse you can give me that would say that the Lord will rapture his church before the tribulation? And uh, to be honest, there is not a verse that specifically states just that, that the, rap- the church will be raptured before the start of the tribulation. But the same is true for the other views either. There's no specific verse that says the Lord will be rapture his church in the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation. But we can ask, and I have um, four, four things, and you probably might have to write on the back of your sheet. I didn't give you a whole lot of room for this. But the question to ask is, <clears throat> are there verses that would say, that teach that the church will not go through the tribulation? Are there any verses that teach that the church will not go through the tribulation? And there are. There are two um, good verses we can point to, and they're powerful. First is this one here, Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Um, Book of Revelation, in those early chapters, chapters 2 and 3, there's seven mini letters to seven actual churches in Asia Minor at that time, which is modern-day Turkey. And, And God could have chosen more churches in that area. There were more churches in that area. There was... uh, uh, Colossi, there was Hierapolis. He could have chosen those, but he chose these specific seven churches because he wanted to address specific things about each of them. And they're really, they're, some are good things, some are bad things the Lord had to rebuke them for. Um, but he also wanted to speak to churches everywhere. And at the end of uh, these many letters, this, you'll see this phrase repeated. And in Revelation 3.13 it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so it's not just a, this is not just instructions for one individual church, but for churches everywhere in all times. Um, and then the, the verse here specifically says that God's going to keep believers from or out of the hour of trial to come upon the whole world. Um, an Old Testament illustration of this would be the city of Sodom. You remember when Lot was living in Sodom and his wife and two daughters, and the Lord was going to destroy that city and he sent two angels to warn Lot and to lead them out of the city. They, they were kind of delaying for whatever reason. And finally, the angels just had to grab their arms and pull them out of the city um, before the Lord rained down fire and brimstone and destroyed it. Um, a post-tribulationalist might like a different illustration from the Old Testament. They might like the one of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace where they were preserved through the fire. And uh, they had to go through it, but they were preserved through it. Okay, interesting. But the, uh, you didn't know this tonight, but you were going to get a mini Greek lesson. <laughs> New Testament was written in Greek. We have to do it in this case. Because he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Um, when a basketball coach says, I will take you out of the game, what does that tell you? Right? You're, gonna, you're in the game. You're in the game, but he's going to take you out um, during the, some point in the game. But um, if the basketball coach were to say, I'm going to keep you out of the game, would that mean something different? Yeah, yeah. He, you would understand that to mean you're not going to even get in the game. And that's what he says here about the tribulation. Church, you're not going to even be in the game here. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. And then Greek, the word from is ek. means out of. The author could have used other Greek words. He could have used the Greek word that would mean in. 
He could have used the Greek word that would have meant through, like a post-tribulation also would say, but he used the word that would meant out of. He will keep us out of the hour of trial. And the hour here is a time period. He's going to keep us out of the entire time period of this trial, which shall come upon the whole world. Now, we've seen a lot of great tribulations throughout history. Um, certainly in the first century, there was tribulation for the believers when the Roman emperor Nero sacked Jerusalem and thousands of Jews were killed. Um, some would say the tribulation events were fulfilled then. But then we, when we come throughout history, there's several times a trial like that for the Jews and for the earth. Uh, and World War II is one of those that comes to mind. At that time, it was so bad, people thought that Hitler was the Antichrist and that the end of time was coming. Um, and he did, uh, was the leader of the Nazis who uh, led to the Holocaust of six million Jews. And if any time could have been called a great tribulation for the nation, it would have been then, but it wasn't then. He says here, you will be kept. Now, if, if God had made a promise, you will be kept from the hour of World War II, right? You would think that you're not going to even be around for World War II. He's going to keep you from that time. You wouldn't be even on the earth because it was a worldwide war from 1941 to 1945. Say if a teacher gives a test and a, and a promise to the, his A students that um, they're going to be kept from the test. Now, what does he mean by that? The teacher might pass out a sheet to these students with the answers, have them go through the test, but have the answers to persevere through that test easily. That would be a post-tribulational view. Um, or the teacher might say, I will keep you from the hour of the exam. If he said it like that, I think those A students probably wouldn't show up for the exam, right? Um, because they're going to be kept from it. And that's what he says. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that come upon the whole world. There's only one way to escape a worldwide trouble like this, and that's not to be present on the earth. This is a great verse for a pre-tribulational rapture. Another one, not quite as powerful, but I think good and helpful. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-10. to For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. It says, God did not appoint us to wrath. Well, when we look in Revelation chapter 6, we, we read that um, they say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10 could mean the wrath of final judgment, or it, or it could also mean the wrath of the tribulation. I think it could mean both. I really think it means both. God has not appointed us as believers to wrath, to face either the tribulation or the final judgment. He hasn't appointed us for that. He's coming as a thief in the night, it says. And uh, salvation is, he's a, is a deliverance from wrath, not just to persevere through it, as a post-tribulationalist would say, but to be saved from it. Um, obviously, believers can go through trials and tribulations in life and persecution in this life, and he uses those times in our lives. Um, but it really does not make sense for the church to go through the wrath of the Lord. All right. Um, I am going to take a 10-minute break. My voice needs it. So I'm going to give us 10 minutes to get refreshments and stuff, and then we're going to look at a few more uh, arguments for a pre-tribulational rapture and then move on into the millennium. Um, I'm going to spend most of my time on the rapture and the millennium tonight. So. All right. I am going to go ahead and get started here. And uh, you, you can finish getting your drink or whatever, but um, 
I want to keep moving because there's some exciting stuff yet to come. And I really want to honor my... I do need my trumpet. You know what? If any, I should have brought it, you know. It, it, would, it would have been fun. Okay. That first reason about a pre-tribulational rapture was that, uh, that the God has given us a promise that he will not allow the church to go through t- uh, the tribulation. He'll keep us from the tribulation and from the wrath of God. Um, another really good argument for a pre-tribulational rapture is that there must be an interval of time between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. There's scriptures that talk about the rapture and there's the ones that talk about the second coming of Christ. And I'm going to argue that there must be a period of time between the two. I'm not going to say how long just yet, but there must be a period of time. In John 14, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is a good preacher verse because it says that Christ comes for the church and takes them to the place he has prepared for them uh, to be with him. Now, if the rapture is not until after the tribulation and believers are to be caught up only to be sent back down right away into the millennial kingdom, then when do they get to go to the place he has prepared for them? Not, af- not until after the millennium. All right, but Christ says, if I go... And, and I will come again, because and I, I've prepared a place for you. He's going to come again and receive you to, he's going to receive us to himself. So he's going to take us to himself and take us to the place he has prepared for us. And so there's got to be some separation between the rapture and the second coming, because we are going to go to the place he has prepared for us in heaven. Um, secondly, First Thessalonians 4.17 It talks about believers being caught up, right? That's that verse we read earlier. And only unbelievers being left right after the rapture. So uh, in Matthew 24 and 25, it talks about people of the earth being gathered together at the second coming. Yeah. Um, No, there's not a page for this. I'm sorry, I have a lot of pages in there, but not one for this. These are additional arguments for the pre-tribulational rapture, so you have to write it on the back or whatever. Um, So... The Matthew 24 and 25 talk about the gathering of the people of the earth. And they will be separated. Some, the goats will be separated from the sheep. That's the unbelievers and the believers. Um, and the unbelievers will be taken away for judgment. Uh, and if the rapture is then, um, they're taken up to heaven. So then where do the believers come from that enter the kingdom if they're already raptured? And that's an argument I used a little bit earlier against post-tribulationalism. There must be a time period between the rapture and the second coming for because all the believers are taken up, there must be some time for new believers to come along to enter the millennial kingdom. There must be a time period, a gap there. Okay, that's uh, another one. Is a third argument for pre-tribulationalism is that the church uh, expected Christ to come at any moment. That's the imminency; it could come at any time. And look at this verse in Philippians three twenty. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Um, This is a rapture verse. It says, we're eagerly waiting for the Savior to appear. We're not dreadfully looking forward to tribulation events. The Bible says, and the expectation of the early church was, that we're eagerly waiting for the Savior. 
Um, so it's imminent. It could happen at any time. The, church, the letters to the churches never tell the church to watch out for the tribulation. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words about the rapture. Uh, how would it be a comfort if they had, just gone, had to go through the tribulation first? It was a comfort because Christ could come at any time and raise the living believers to heaven and the dead believers who they were worrying about uh, to heaven as well. Okay, last argument for pre-tribulational rapture is the lack of mention of the church in the tribulation chapters of Revelation. Now, we don't always make an argument from silence, um, but this is a good one because it depends on the context and and what the expectations you have are. Um, An argument from silence. Okay, so say if a woman asks a man, am I fat? And the man's response was silence. Um, That would communicate an answer quite clearly, right? If the wife asks the husband, do you love me? And the response was silence it would communicate an answer. Now, the church is mentioned many times in the first three chapters of Revelation. And there's that phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But then, the church is not seen in the scenes in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, and they're not seen at all or mentioned in the tribulation chapters in chapters 6 through 18. In fact, that, that phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, is repeated in Revelation 13 during the tribulation, but it's a little bit different. It just says, hear what the Spirit says, without mentioning the churches. That's interesting. And that's because the church isn't there. But then, when do you see the church again? You see them in Revelation 19, coming, the saints coming back with the Lord when he comes down in power and glory on Judgment Day. And so the church is not there. That's an argument from silence, but I think a good one because of the expectation that the church is mentioned all over the place in the first three chapters. Um, And then you have the come up here at the beginning of chapter four, and then you don't see them at all until Christ returns after the tribulation. Um, I think I have this page in your notes somewhere, pre-trib or post-trib. I just thought I'd include this. This was from John MacArthur. And uh, it's just kind of a quick hit list a pre-trib versus post-trib. And this, is, this will end our talk on the rapture. Uh, but just kind of quickly now, um, pre-trib or post-trib. If, if you don't find it, it's not there, but I, I think I might have put it in there. So it's kind of a treasure hunt for you. But uh, okay, Revelation chapters 1 to 3 used the Greek word for church 19 times. That's the first blank. But Revelation chapters 6 through 18 do not mention the church as being on the earth. Um, and that's that, the verses I just talked about. Uh, secondly, Revelation 19 does not mention a rapture, even though that is where a post-tribulational rapture, if true, would logically occur. Um, if you're a post-tribulationalist, you should see a rapture in Revelation 19, but you don't. Um, if God preserves the church during the tribulation, as post-tribulationalists assert, then why have a rapture at all? I mean, it doesn't make sense to rapture the believers from the earth for no apparent purpose other than to just bring them back down to earth with Christ right away. Um, Next is, a pre-tribulational rapture is necessary to populate and propagate the earthly kingdom because we have to allow for some time in there for new believers. Um, The New Testament does not warn of an impending tribulation, as I mentioned, uh, such as experienced during Daniel's 70th week. I'll comment on that in a moment. 
for church-age believers. So we're not warned about an impending tribulation. We're just told to eagerly look for Christ. Um, and Paul's instructions to the Thessalonians demand a pre-tribulational rapture. Um, if Paul was teaching post-tribulationalism, you would expect that the believers there would rejoice that their loved ones were home with the Lord and spared the horrors of the tribulation. But in actuality, the Thessalonians were grieved in their spirit, we read. Um, and and the, if you were a post-tribulationalist, uh, you would expect them to sorrow over the coming trials and, uh, and ask about this time more, but they don't. They don't express any such dread or questioning over a tribulation. And, and so Paul, Paul uh, instructs and exhorts them about the rapture, and he tells them to comfort one another with these words. So it's a, it's a pre-tribulational rapture for that reason. And the sequence of events at Christ's coming following the tribulation uh, demands a pre-tribulational rapture. Um, there's just not enough of time uh, between the two, if you put them right next to each other, for all the things that the Bible says have to happen at that time. Um, so I'm going through these kind of quick, but it's just like I said, a quick hit list. And you can't see that very clearly there on the slide there. But this is the sequence of events at Christ's coming following the tribulation demands the pre-tribulational rapture. You know, at the rapture, Christ is gathering his own, the believers, right? At the second coming... Angels are gathering the elect. At the rapture, the resurrection is prominent, but at the second coming, you just have a resurrection of tribulation martyrs, but it's, it's not really about a resurrection so much. Uh, in the rapture, Christ comes to reward believers. Um, but in Matthew 25, at the second coming, Christ comes to judge the earth. There's, there's different purposes. Um, in the rapture, the Lord snatches away true believers from the earth, 1 Thessalonians 4. In the second coming, he takes away unbelievers for judgment in Matthew 24. At the rapture, unbelievers remain on the earth. At the second coming, believers remain on the earth. At the rapture, there's no mention of the establishment of Christ's kingdom. But at the second coming, Christ sets up his kingdom. At the rapture, believers receive glorified bodies, according to 1 Corinthians 15. At the second coming, there's no mention of glorified bodies. All right, so just some differences there um, that point to a pre-tribulational rapture. <clears throat> um, I read the verses in John 14 that Jesus is going to take his people to the place he has prepared for them um, at, when he comes again. And, and not, it doesn't mention the kingdom there in the second coming. Uh, and then Revelation 3.10, as I pointed out, teaches that the Lord will remove the church prior to the tribulation. Um, so I think that it makes the best sense of understanding the words of Thessalonians 4.18 when it says, therefore comfort one another with these words when we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, I, d I just hope that, you know, that's a lot of detail about the pre-tribulational rapture. But uh, if someone were to ask you, why do you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture? Well, it's just because the church I grew up in or what my parents were taught uh, 30 years ago or, you know, just because I've heard that's, that's the right thing. But you know what? You have now some specific scriptural arguments and reasoning to believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. And may the Lord come soon, right? Uh, we are eagerly waiting as a church for the coming of Christ at the rapture. Thank you.